We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azel, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. Well, good morning also again to our online crew joining us. Um, If y'all don't know who I am, my name is Chris Brown. I am not the senior pastor here. Uh, That is Lee Sipe, but they are on week two of their vacation, and they are in Colorado right now, so be jealous. But don't fear, they're coming back next week, so you only have to listen to me one more time. So uh, we got a great message today. I'm super looking forward to it. Uh, We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 18. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, you're more than welcome to open up to that. Uh, But let's go ahead and stand up together and read this passage, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. It says this, This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he went and made it into another jar as it seemed right for him to do. The word of the Lord came to me, house of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats the clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. Let's pray. God, um, I thank you for bringing us together, and I thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that, um, that we have uh, passages like this um, from, from the past and from history uh, that we can look at and that we can heed warnings from. And so, Lord, I just pray as we dive into this passage for a few minutes, uh, God, that you would speak to us through it, that we wouldn't um, have our uh, hearts hardened, but we would be moldable like clay in the potter's hand. God, it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can go ahead and have a seat. So, how many of y'all are coffee fans? That you like coffee? Great. Amen. Yes. So, uh, I, uh, me and my wife Randy, uh, we are what you might call coffee snobs. Uh, we're just pretentious that way. Uh, we uh, we don't uh, buy our coffee pre-ground. We ground it ourselves. Um, we don't use a Keurig. If you have a Keurig, just go ahead and dump that in the trash. Uh, we make real coffee. If you offer me cream and milk, I'm going to throw it away. We drink it straight black because if the coffee's made good, it tastes uh, good black. So that's who we are. And uh, one of the things I want to do today is I want to take you through that process of coffee. So I want to make a cup of coffee for you today. I'm sure you're probably wondering what this is behind us. It is our coffee setup at home. Exciting, I know. So let me explain to you what's going on up here. So first we've got our kettle right here that's heating up. We've got our grinder right here that grinds up the beans. Of course, you got to have coffee beans, good coffee beans right there. Uh, here's how pretentious we are. I've got a scale to make sure and weigh the coffee beans to make sure that that's the right amount between the coffee. For your own edification, um, it takes about six grams of coffee for every 100 grams of water. Ooh, look at that. The water's ready. Um, About six grams of coffee for every 100 grams of water. Apply that to your own life. You'll be better off for it. So 
Here we got the coffee beans. We're gonna go ahead and throw those guys in there and start doing that. Now, there's a few different ways to manually make coffee. Again, a lot of y'all probably have Keurigs, a lot of y'all probably have um, these like machines to make it. That's amateur hour. We use pour over here. So uh, there's pour over, there's French press, there's AeroPress. We like the pour over, we're pretentious that way. So we're gonna do that today. So as I make this, I wanna just talk to y'all about the process of coffee a little bit. So a lot of us, no coffee in this state right here. The state of it being already ground up and uh, ready to go. Um, some of you may get the whole beans and grind, up, grind it up yourself, but the coffee actually goes through quite a bit of a process before it even gets to that point. Oh, you know what? I just realized I didn't preheat my thing. Pour that back out. It goes through quite a process before it even gets to that point. So, I want to just kind of explain that process to you a little bit. So, uh, coffee, if you don't know, is actually just a green bean in itself. And so, whenever coffee is plucked from the vine, it's just this raw green bean. And that raw green bean actually has little to no flavor at all. All of the flavor actually comes from the roasting process. And so, if you screw up the roast, you're going to mess up the coffee. So, the coffee farmers will send these green beans off to the roasters, and then the roasters take the, that process of roasting very seriously, and they go through a very specific, yet very simple process. Um, it only takes about 10 to 15 minutes to roast the coffee the way that it's supposed to be roasted. Um, they'll stick it in the, the little machine that, that stirs it around, and they'll heat it up uh, for about 10 to 15 minutes at about 400 to 425 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, um, as they roast that coffee, however they roast it in that moment is going to determine the flavor of the coffee. If they under-roast the coffee, it's going to turn into a very underwhelming and sour cup of coffee. If they over-roast the coffee, it's going to turn into a burnt and very bitter cup of coffee. So they got to make sure and get it just right. And there's a few processes that it goes through. But as soon as it's done in the, the roastery, then they package up and they send those coffee beans off to people like me. And then I throw those beans into this little guy right here and grind them to a very specific setting. And then I throw it in this guy right here and pour it to a very specific way. And the goal is if you can get all of these processes right, what you end up having is a great cup of coffee. Now, I do this every single morning. I make the coffee every morning that I get up. And, um, and this week, every time I got up to make my coffee, I was thinking about this process that the coffee goes through. And as I was thinking about the process of it, it reminded me more and more of Jeremiah chapter 11. Sorry, Jeremiah chapter 18. Uh, so in Jeremiah chapter 18, God is telling Jeremiah, hey, go to this potter's house. And I just want to give you a depiction of how I interact with you. And so as he goes to Jeremiah's house, or sorry, as he goes to the potter's house, he sees the potter grabbing this clay and forming it into jars. And, and if the clay doesn't work the way that he wants it to, then he forms it into a different jar as he sees fit. And that's very similar to the process of coffee where you've got this raw green bean that's sent off to the roasters and then they roast it for a very uh, specific heat and very specific amount of time. And then they package it up and then we grind it to a very specific um, setting, and then we uh, make the coffee. And then at the end of the process, you have a nice 
good-looking cup of coffee. And in the same way, God is telling Jeremiah that when he's working with us, when he's able to mold us, then what he does is he takes raw clay and through the process of water and turning and molding and water and turning and molding, he's able to turn it into something beautiful. And so what we're going to talk about today, I need somewhere to set this, what we're going to talk about today is where do we fall into that? God, God was speaking specifically to the Israelites here into a specific situation with the Israelites, but it's not um, uh, any stretch of the imagination to, to be able to apply this to our lives. That in the same way that God is talking to the Israelites here, God is talking to us here, and God wants us to be moldable in the same way that he is. Now, the thing is with this passage, while it's a very beautiful, poetic passage where, where God is saying um, uh, that he is a potter and that we're the clay, while that's beautiful and poetic, this passage is full of frustration with his people. We're going to see here that, that this, this opening uh, uh, statement is not leading into a happy-go-lucky talk. It's actually going to lead into a talk where God has to have some really hard conversations with his people. And so uh, as we get into this passage, what I want you to notice here is that um, there's, there's, um, there's two possible jars that God makes in this. So let's go ahead and pull back up that passage uh, that we just read. So in verse 4, it says this, But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand, so he made it into another jar as it seemed right for him to do. This passage, uh, or this illustration of God being the potter and us being the clay and being molded into jars is, um, if, if I'm right, if, if my memory serves me correctly, it's mentioned three times in the Bible. And every time, there are two different possibilities presented, a good one and a bad one. So we have here, um, he's trying to make one jar, the clay became flawed, and so he made it into a different jar. In other passages, you have uh, jars that are prepared for glory, and then you have jars that are prepared for destruction. In another passage, you have jars that are prepared for honorable use, and jars that are prepared for dishonorable use. And so there's always a good and a bad. And if, and if this passage shows us the determining factor in what jar is being made is the clay itself. If the clay is flawed and hardened, then he makes it into a bad jar. If the clay is moldable, then he makes it into a good jar. And so before we even get started, the question that I want to ask you is, what kind of clay are you? Are you a good moldable clay or are you a bad hardened clay? And as we go through this passage, I want you to keep that in mind. And keep in mind, uh, in what ways can I yield myself to God to become more moldable? So the Israelites in this passage are for sure the tough, hardened clay. Um, like we're going to see, um, they're going to find themselves in a position where they're turning against God. And so God um, uh, gives them warnings and guidance on how uh, they can avoid becoming that, but they don't. And so they go down that. And so unfortunately, the Israelites' history is already written, and it's already happened to them. And, and uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't go well for them. They end up in hundreds of years of turmoil because of the decisions that they're making right now. But the great thing for us is that we, uh, our stories aren't completely written yet. 
And we can look back, as the Bible instructs us to do, we can look back on the Israelites in the Old Testament and look at the mistakes they made and the warnings that God gave them and apply them to our lives. So that's exactly what I want to do today. We're going to go through uh, this uh, chapter 18, and we're going to see the warnings that God gave them, and we're going to pull out of this three ways in which we can become more moldable by God so that we don't face the same fate as the Israelites. Okay, so three ways that we can become more moldable by God. I bet this is probably um, cold enough for me to drink. It is. All right, how many of y'all want coffee right now? Well, one lucky winner is going to watch me drink it. (laughs) This is great because I only usually have one cup of coffee a day. Uh, This is my third one. (laughs) So... That might be good or bad for y'all. Okay. So we're going to pick up in verse 5 of chapter 18. So it says this, The word of the Lord came to me. House of Israel, can I not treat you as the potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just uh, Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. And here's the new part. At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. Now, that's pretty extreme language going on there, right? Like, like that's not just like, hey, I'm going to give you like a slap on the wrist. It's like, hey, if a nation doesn't get their stuff together, I'm going to come in and destroy it and take it down. And that's exactly what he's saying to the Israelites right here. And so um, what the first thing that we see is when God interacts with the people who are unwilling to be molded by him, one of the first things that God does is he comes in and gives discipline to the people. So in this case, uh, God said, hey, you're welcome to go uh, your ways. You're welcome to reject me. You're welcome to go chase idols. But hear this, that with those actions come consequences and with those actions come discipline. Namely, in this case, He's going to destroy and tear down the nation. So what's the first way that we can see that we can become more moldable by God? Uh, We can um, uh, recognize that discipline is a good thing. We can recognize that discipline is a good thing. See, discipline in our culture has become really a bad word, and I don't really think it should be. Like like the image of discipline, when we hear that word, usually what comes to our mind is is some sort of of punishment. It might be spankings, or it might be, if you're from the South, whoopings. Uh, It might be grounding. If you're anything like me, it brings up um, uh, images of your grandma telling you to go grab a switch off the willow tree, so that way she can hit you with it. It may bring up all sorts of those images. And, and while sometimes punishment is a part of discipline, it can't be solely boiled down to just that. The point of discipline is to mold and shape people into a desired outcome. And sometimes that includes punishment, and sometimes that doesn't include punishment. But either way, you only start to see that discipline, or sorry, Either way, you only start to see discipline as a bad thing when you divorce discipline from love and care. Discipline and love and care go hand in hand, and when you take them apart from each other, you will find yourself um, despising discipline. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says this, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. 
And so we see here that the reason that God disciplines us is because he loves us. In the same way that the reason you might discipline your child is because you delight in them, because you have a very uh, specific way, way that you want your child to go. And if your child starts to veer off, you might discipline him and pull him back. Now, by the way, that I love that I can drink coffee on stage and not feel bad about it because it's an illustration. There we go. So, um, discipline should always come out of a place of love and care. But unfortunately, I think we've all seen and or experienced discipline that was really abuse and it was called discipline. Or we've seen uh, times that we've seen people have short tempers and are prone to anger and then they call it discipline. And those are two different things. Discipline does, uh, should never come out of a place of anger. Discipline should always come out of a place of love and care. And that's always the case with God. God always, God's discipline always comes out of the case of love and care. Uh, Psalm 103 says this, God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. You can be sure that if you're receiving discipline from God, though it may hurt, it's always rooted in a place of love and care, not in a place of anger. Tom Landry puts it this way, uh, a famous coach for the Cowboys. He says this, he says, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. And that's the whole purpose of discipline. Like, like with, your, with your children. Discipline you use because you see a vision and a picture and a clear goal that you want your child to become. And so what do you do? You um, enact discipline to help get that child from point A to point B. Because uh, I don't know if y'all have noticed this, if you don't discipline a child, he's not going to end up in that, that clear goal. He's going to go off his own way. So we use discipline to help them get along that side. And, and the thing is, is that kids don't like it. Of course kids don't like it. Kids can't see the end goal. Kids are short-sighted. Kids aren't long-sighted. So whenever you tell your kids, hey, you need to do homework because later on in life, you're going to, to appreciate having a hard work, work ethic, the kid doesn't understand that, so they'd rather play video games. The kid doesn't understand that they need to uh, keep their room clean and organized because they'll be appreciative later that they are able to have an organized life. The kid doesn't understand that they need to respect and share with the people around them because life will go better if they respect and share with the people around them. I see a lot of parents nudging their kids right now. <laughs> Again, they don't know that. They don't see that. You do, though, parents. You know what it looks like to be, hopefully, a well-functioning adult. And so you want your kids to get there. And so what do you do? You have a clear angle in mind, so you start to discipline your children to help get them to that point. You mold them to help them get to that point. And the, while they may not like the discipline now, they will appreciate it later. At the time, when I was younger, my grandpa, man, he used to whoop me so hard. And, uh, and I hated it in the moment. And I hated it when he got onto me. But now it's one of some of my fondest memories, looking back. Because I know that uh, in the midst of that discipline, uh, there was a grandpa who cared very deeply about me and wanted me to grow up to be the man that he knew I could become. So we discipline our kids, and in the same way, God disciplines us. God has a very clear plan for us uh, and a very clear end goal in mind. And because he loves and cares for you, 
He will discipline you at times to help you get to that point. And, and we probably won't like it in the moment. But just like that proverb said, like, don't despise the discipline of the Lord because he cares very much for you and he loves you very much. And that is doing a good work in you. So don't think short-sighted. Short-sighted thinks, I want what's in front of me and I hate this discipline that's taken away. Long-sighted says, okay, I don't quite understand why this is being taken away from me, but I know that in the long run, God has my best interest in mind. So how do we become more moldable by God? The first thing that we do is we recognize that God's, uh, we recognize that discipline from God is a good thing. Let's go ahead and keep going. Uh, So we're in verse 8 now of chapter 18. So right before this verse um, is where God says, um, hey, uh, you're like clay, uh, I'm the potter, and at any moment I can uproot and tear down a nation, and then it goes straight into this, verse 8. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent the concern, I'm sorry, relent concerning the disaster I plan to do to it. So God is disciplining um, Israel right here and telling them that there's a disaster coming and all you do is have to repent from the evil that you're doing. Now, what evil was uh, Israel struggling with right now? Well, a couple of verses later, uh, God explains that their uh, particular sin issue was idolatry. And so what we can see uh, here is that the second way you can become more moldable by God is to... Remove idols from your life. In the same way that he was calling Israel to remove idols from their life, he's calling us to also remove idols from our life. Now, that seems pretty easy, right? Like, like let me explain to you what idol worship looked like back then. So, one of the main uh, idols that they served was Molech. If you haven't heard of Molech, it was this famous um, uh, pagan god in the Old Testament, and it was one that they would make sacrifices to and worship, and in response, uh, they were supposed to receive prosperity. Now, there's different forms of worship with Molech, so I don't know if this is the exact form of worship that they were doing here, but there has been examples of the worship of Molech being they would come to the statue of Molech with his arms out like this, And they would heat up the arms and bring live babies and set them on the arms and sacrifice the babies. I'm pretty sure none of us are doing that today, right? That's weirdly quiet. I hope that's not y'all. Okay, so I think all of us, we're not going to the God of Molech and sacrificing babies. I would even go far enough to say that, that all of us, we probably don't have shrines of Buddha in our house that we go and worship to. We probably don't have pagan gods in our house that we go and worship to. But unfortunately, here's some bad news. That doesn't mean that you don't have idols in your life. Idols aren't confined to statues and figurines depicting something. Here's what idols are. Idols are anything, any created thing, whether a person or a product, it's any created thing that you have elevated to the status above God. And I think the problem that we have is that there's a lot of idols in our life that we don't even realize that are there. So there's this really interesting study done in 1966, or 1956 by a guy named Horace Miner. And he did an anthropology study on the tribe of Nasarima. And so he went into this, this tribe of Nasarima 
and he started to observe their culture. He started to observe uh, the ceremonies and the rituals that they would do. And it's really interesting what he found. He found that every single, uh, he, said, he found that the culture largely worshipped this idea of body image. And so they would pray and do rituals to gods to keep their body image going. So what he found is in every single household, there was at least one shrine dedicated to this. In the more wealthy households, there were multiple shrines dedicated to this. Um, the rest of the house would be uh, made using wood, but inside these shrines, it was more decorative stone and pottery that, that encompassed these shrines. When you walked in the shrine, there was a charm box mounted onto the wall, and inside the charm box, there was um, different charms and magical potions that they would use in their rituals. Underneath the charm box was a fount uh, from which they would pull holy water, and they would secure this holy water from the water temple in the community. And so they would come in and do these rituals twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. They would come in and do these rituals and ceremonies to um, the gods to maintain their body image. And so what they believed is if they didn't do these things, then they would uh, um, lose their friends. They would lose their family. They believed that their teeth would fall out. They believed that their gums would bleed and that they would be exiled from the world. On top of these rituals that they would go in in the morning and go in in the night uh, every day, they would uh, go consult medicine men in the community. And uh, of the medicine men, there was the higher tier up medicine men called the holy mouth men. And so once or twice a year, they would go to these holy mouth men to do an extra over-the-top ritual with them. And so this ritual uh, would proceed. They would sit in a chair. The holy mouth men would open up their mouth and they would enlarge holes in their teeth. And then after they enlarge holes in their teeth, they would spread magical, um, for lack of a better word, goo inside that hole. It's a lot going on there. Has anyone, ever, has anyone caught on to what's going on yet? The tribe of Nasarima is actually <laughs> us here in America. So you see, Nasarima is actually American spelled backwards. Let me backtrack and, and piece it together for you. So this guy uh, made this, uh, decided to do this study, and he thought to himself, what if we observed America without the lens of the American culture and observe it through the lens of pagan worship? And so what he said was, is that Americans are weirdly obsessed with uh, their image. And so what they do is they have bathrooms in their house dedicated to where they go in once in the morning, once at night. They would open up these things. They would brush their teeth floss, do whatever they do, and then once or twice a year, they would go to the dentist and have cavities drilled and then fill the cavities. And he's like, what he notices is that everyone is really obsessed with this, and they believe if you don't do these things, your gums will start to bleed, your teeth will fall out, no one will want to be your friend. You, sure, you for sure won't get a girlfriend or a boyfriend. So the reason I bring that up, which by the way, that is a real paper, uh, by the way, uh, written in 1956. You should go look it up. It's about six pages long. It's really a fun read. Uh, the reason I, I bring that up is if someone was to come in and look into your life and they don't know anything about you, what would they walk away with? Would they walk away thinking that you have idols in your life or would they walk away thinking, man, that's someone who loves God? So from that perspective, what idols do you have in your life? Is it your phone? 
If someone was to watch you um, day in and day out, would they see you every morning before you, or as soon as you wake up, before you say anything to anyone else, do you grab your phone and start catching up on social media? Every night before you go to bed, do you grab your phone and recap social media that you've already recapped like 12 times that day? Would they see that you place way too much of a weight on your spouse and you pull way too much happiness from them? Will they see that you place way too much pressure on your kids? Would they see that you watch way too much TV and Netflix? That one's actually probably true. I looked up a study, or not a study, but I looked up the average amount of time an American watches TV. You know what it is? The average amount of time is four hours a day. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. Let me put that into a greater perspective. In the course of a year, if you watch an average of four hours of TV a day, you will have watched TV for two months straight in the year. And we wonder why we never get projects done at home, right? Now, here's the thing. These aren't bad things. Like, idols inherently aren't bad things. They're just things. Like, your phone isn't a bad thing. Your, your spouse, your family isn't a bad thing. Netflix sometimes isn't a bad thing. But here's the thing, is that um, in the hands of a sinful heart, we can turn anything into an idol. We can turn good things into idols. John Calvin said this way, the human heart is an idol factory. That's all, without God, that's all it knows how to do is just pump out idols. And so without God, the only thing that our hearts know how to do is to take good things that God has given us and then turn them into idols. And so what idols are in your life? Because as we've seen here, um, the, one of the key ways to become moldable by God is to get idols out of your life. And so if you find yourself hardened by God, if you find yourself thinking, like, I don't remember the last time that, that God came to my mind and, and I didn't feel guilt and I didn't feel pain and I didn't feel like I'm failing him. Or if the only time that, that the thought of God and sanctification comes to your mind, the only thing you can think of is like, I'm just tired and I just don't want to deal with that. If your heart is hardened, maybe one of the first steps you need to take in, in uh, softening your heart and having your heart become more moldable is to uh, remove some idols from your life. Let's go ahead and keep going. So now we're on to uh, uh, verse 12 of chapter 18. So God just got done saying uh, that, that uh, he is going to uh, send a disaster and that if you uh, don't relent and repent of your uh, evil that you're doing, then that disaster is going to come. But if you repent and relent of that evil, that disaster will be gone. Here was their response, verse 12. But they, the Israelites, will say, it's hopeless. We will continue to follow our plans and each of us will continue to act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Now, this is such an interesting response to me. Like, like if you're having a conversation with God, or if I'm having a conversation with God, and God says, hey, you're going a certain path, and if you don't stop, I'm going to destroy your life. Uh, and, but if you stop and relent, then, then everything's good. My response, I don't think, would be, nah, that's good. I'll keep going. But that's the response. It's like there's a train coming at them and God's saying, hey, there's a train coming your way. You should probably look up and get off that path. And they say, I'll be okay. I bet I can keep walking on this and the train's not going to hurt me. 
That's their response. Now, here's the interesting thing. Is, um, I'm sorry, before I get into that. So, so that's their response. So what we need to do, uh, one of the last things I want to pull out of this passage is uh, the way to become more moldable by God is to relinquish your plan to God. And that's what they see here. They were gripping too tight to their plan and not willing to release their plan and to God. Now, the amazing thing is that uh, in the midst of God warning them, they still decided to do their own plan. Now, why did they decide to do their own plan? Uh, Well, the passage says it was due to the stubbornness of their heart. So let's pull up that verse again, uh, verse 12. And it says, uh, but they will say it's hopeless. We will continue to follow our plans. Each of us will continue to act according to the stubbornness of his heart. So they want to keep doing their plan. Why? Because of the stubbornness of their heart. Their stubbornness is what caused them to ignore God and to stay on their track, even though their track was leading to destruction. Now hear me on this. In the same way that their stubbornness is leading them to death and destruction, that is going to be the same thing that leads to our destruction. The reason that we will continue our plan and not hear God's plan is because we are stubborn. Here's the thing, you don't need me to tell you that that affair is going to ruin your marriage. And you don't need me to tell you that that addiction that you have is going to ruin your life. You don't need me to tell you that if you keep talking that way uh, about your friends behind their backs, that's going to destroy your relationships with your your friends. We already know these things. Like, like you don't need me to tell you these things. Uh, The reason that we don't uh, stop doing these things isn't because of a lack of knowledge. It isn't because of ignorance. It's because we're stubborn. And it's because um, our hearts are evil and, and that causes us to dig deeper into our plan, even though that plan is leading us to disaster because we are stubborn, stubborn and we'd rather hold on to our plan than releasing it to God and taking on his plan. And that's the boat that the Israelites were in and that's the boat that we're in as well. Now, this concept might be uh, best explained by what's known as the monkey trap. Uh, You might have heard about this before. Um, It's a method in trapping a monkey uh, by appealing to his stubbornness. And so I could explain it, but there's a video that will explain it a little bit better than I could. A hole in a giant anteater when he is sure a baboon is watching him because he knows baboons are incurably inquisitive. Next, he puts some wild melon seeds into the hole and works them in so that they drop into a hollow. Then he saunters off, knowing the baboon is burning with curiosity. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all, so he plays it cool. But he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. If he had the sense to drop the seed, he could free his hand. Now he lets go when it's too late. So that was a smart enough way to catch a baboon, but he still has to make him talk. Isn't that crazy? You got this monkey who this guy carves a hole in the wall just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in and throw some seed in there. The monkey reaches in. And by the way, the monkey doesn't even know what's in there. 
Like, did did y'all catch that? The monkey doesn't know that seed in there. The monkey just knows that there's something in there. So he reaches his hand and grabs that seed. And because his hands are full of seed now, it's too big to pull out of the hole. And so the natural response to that would be, let go of the seed and pull the hand out. But he doesn't. He, in his stubbornness, stays there gripping tighter and tighter and tighter. And he thinks to himself, if I can just pull hard enough, I can have both life and what's in this hole. Even though that there is um, death looming in on him, there's someone who's literally coming and putting a, a rope around his neck. He sees that and he thinks to himself, I got this. I got this. I can get this. And did you notice, I love the way they said it, uh, that um, as soon as the, the rope was around his neck, then he lets go of the seed, but it was too late. And that's what God is telling uh, the Israelites here, and that's what God is telling us here. He's like, hey, if you decide to go um, your own way, if your stubbornness decides that I can both um, grab this and escape out unharmed, then you're just fooling yourself. That the more that you try to grab onto your plan of life, the more you try to grab onto your way of life, to your sins, your idols, the more and more death is going to be looming over you. And if you think that you can have both these things and life, then you're just fooling yourself. And it's just a matter of time. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be next year. Who knows? But um, time and time again, I see people who um, have embraced Oh, a sinful way of life, and then surely enough, something comes out, and their life is ruined. You can't have both your plan and life. God is telling us, hey, you need to let go of that thing. You need to um, uh, let go of your plan, because that's going to lead to death and destruction, and you need to embrace my plan. God wants to spare us of that pain. God wants to spare us of the destruction that comes from following our own ways. And so he asked us to relinquish our plans to him. Now, the beautiful thing uh, in that, in us uh, relinquishing our plans to God is that he replaces it with a better one. God comes in and he says uh, that, that here's a better plan. And while it's not the most comfortable plan, while it's not the most luxurious plan, while it's not the plan that's going to give you the most instant gratification, this plan delivers on the promise of life and delivers on the promise of peace and joy. If you just follow me and follow what I have for you, then you will be molded into everything that you were created to be. And while it seems you're giving up something, you're gaining so much more. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. A lot of us probably know this verse. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a hope, sorry, to give you a future and a hope. Now, a lot of us have probably heard this verse before, and, and what we're talking about today is the very context of this passage this verse fits into the very context of this passage. God is saying, hey, there's a disaster coming to you, and I'm sending a disaster. But here's the thing. The plan that I have for you isn't this disaster. This disaster is coming on to you. This isn't what I want. 
I have a different plan for you. I have a plan for you that's for your well-being. It's not for your disaster. It's for you to have a future and a hope. And the only thing holding you back from, from uh, grabbing on to that well-being, to that future, to that hope, to everything I've designed for you to be, is you. Just allow me to mold you. Don't be hardened in your heart. Allow me to mold you. God had a wonderful, life-fulfilling plan for them. But they decided to go their own ways. And unfortunately for them, because they went their own ways, it landed them in turmoil for hundreds and hundreds of years. We still have a chance. God is calling out to us saying like he wants to mold you. He doesn't want you to be hardened. He wants to mold you into everything he has you to be. So are you going to be moldable is the question. Let me pray that we do. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, for, for passages like this that, that so uh, poetically explain our relationship to you. And God, I pray uh, that as we uh, gather in this place and as we go home, God, that we, um, we wouldn't be the hardened clay. But God, that we would recognize that, that your ways are higher and that your ways are better. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that whatever is holding us back from that, that we would release it to you today. If you need to d- discipline us, then, then bring the discipline. If that will cause us to remove uh, sin from our life, to remove idols from our life, then we ask you to bring that because we want to be a, a group of people who embrace your plan and not ours. And so, Lord, convict us today. Let us know where that's happening. And I pray, Lord, that we have the courage and the strength to respond accordingly to that. So again, I'm not sure where you are right now. You might be a person that's thinking to yourself, like, I've been hardened to God for a long time. I don't even remember the last time I talked to God. And if that's you, know here that 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 doesn't have to be the case. The whole reason for God sending discipline and this warning to Israel is so that they would wake up and turn from their ways and allow themselves to be moldable. God is saying the same thing to you. He wants you to wake up, turn from your ways, and allow God to mold you in that. And so I don't know where you are today, and I don't know what decisions you need to make, uh, but we're going to spend just a few moments um, in song, and you can pray in your seat. You can pray up here at the altar. You can come up. Uh, we can talk more. We can pray some. Uh, whatever you need to do, whatever God is convicting you to do, now is your time to do it. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you are ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.